Welcome. You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Hello and welcome to the Black Experience Hour, a 60-minute weekly program bringing you news of interest from a variety of sources. This one is being pre-recorded on August 28th for the listening week that begins September 10th. And the first portion of this program will be called from articles in print editions of various sources. And your reader's name is Susan Shirey, opening with an article that was posted in the New York Times or printed in the New York Times on August 21st. Fatal shooting of prominent wildlife defender may signal an escalation. Written by Rachel Neuer. Anton Mzimba, the lead ranger at a reserve in South Africa, had received multiple death threats, but he tried not to let the warnings of danger get to him reminding himself that by protecting rhinos, he was working for the greater good, according to an interview he gave last year. In the, night, pardon me, in the 2021 interview, Mr. Mzimba said, What I am doing, I'm not doing for my own sake. I'm doing this for the world, for my children's children, so that one day, when I hang my boots, when I retire, when I die, they are going to enjoy the wildlife. Africa's close-knit conservation community has been reeling since Mr. Mzimba was gunned down in front of his family at home on July 26th. His wife was also shot, but survived. The slaying has stoked concerns that criminal syndicates may be growing more brazen and violent in their efforts to secure illegal wildlife products. Mr. Mzimba, 42, was the head ranger at Timbavati Private Nature Reserve, a 206-square-mile protected area in the greater Kruger landscape, home to elephants, rhinoceroses, lions, leopards, and cheetahs. In an environment plagued by poaching and corruption, Mr. Mzimba was known for being incorruptible, a stalwart of conservation. If you want to talk front line, you talk Anton Mzimba, said Ruben uh, Decock, operations manager for Lead Ranger, a professional training group. He was the ultimate ranger. Reached by phone, Briggs Selvi Molala, a spokesman for the police unit leading the investigation into Mr. B pardon me, into Mr. M Mzimba's killing, pardon me, said that we don't know if the attack had something to do with his work or private life. But given the number of serious job-related threats aimed at Mr. Mzimba and his efforts to thwart crime syndicates, Andrew Campbell, the chief executive of the Game Rangers Association of Africa, said that would appear to be the most likely motive. Mr. Mzimba's dedication to defending wildlife definitely seems to have been a factor, said Edward Pierce, Timbavati's warden. Anton was a man of integrity, a man that wouldn't waver from protection of rhinos, he said. He added, 
For syndicates to have actually gone ahead with this, it means Anton was a significant threat to them. Rangers around the world risk their lives every day, but those in Africa face especially high levels of danger. Elephant and rhino poachers are always armed, and in politically unstable places like the Democratic Republic of Congo, military groups frequently clash with rangers. Of the 565 African rangers known to have died in the line of duty since 2011, 52% of the deaths were homicide, according to Mr. Campbell. The number of deaths has also been increasing, he said, with a record high of 92 rangers last year, half of them attributed to homicide. Mr. Mzimba's death stands out, however, as an escalation from the norm, said Mr. Campbell. Now these syndicates feel comfortable literally coming in and doing mob-style hits. It is also probable, Mr. Campbell added, that Mr. Mzimba was targeted because of his high profile in the conservation and wildlife security community. He was named Field Ranger of the Year and is the subject of an upcoming documentary film, Rhino Man. He also served as a technical advisor with the Global Conservation Corps, where he helped to initiate a program that now connects 10,000 South African students a week to their natural heritage. Anton was one of the kindest, most gentle and loving humans, but he was also a warrior, said John Jerko II, co-director of Rhino Man. He was out there defending these rhinos from serious threats from poachers. Born in Mozambique, Mr. Mzimba and his family moved to South Africa in search of better opportunities. His career in conservation began by chance, when a job removing invasive plants brought him to Timbavati. Mr. Mzimba was just 17, but his work ethic caught the eye of the reserve's warden, who offered him a full-time position. Within a decade, Mr. Mzimba had become head of the Ranger Corps at Timbavati. This was a person who truly made it from the bottom to the top, Mr. Decock said. Mr. Mzimba often said he viewed wildlife protection as his duty as a Christian, and he was also renowned for his loyalty. When Mr. Mzimba started working in Timbavati in 1998, the poachers he apprehended were mostly poor men who sneaked into the reserve to hunt animals for food. By the 2010s, organized criminal syndicates were aggressively pursuing rhino horns, which were in high demand in China, Vietnam, and other Asian countries. We went from subsistence poaching and killing animals for meat to killing animals for money. Pardon me. Mr. Mzimba said last year, As of 2017, South Africa was home to 75% of the world's remaining 23,562 white and black rhinos according to the International Union for Conservation of Nature. At least 9,353 of South Africa rhinos have been killed for their horns over the past 13 years, although poaching has decreased from a high of 1,215 rhinos lost in 2014. It remains a major problem. Last year, 451 rhinos were killed. 
I would say we're holding the line, said Elise Serfontaine, the founding director of StopRhinoPoaching.com, a South Africa-based nonprofit conservation organization. But the effort to hold that line comes at a massive cost financially, and a massive cost physically and mentally for rangers and reserve management, she said. Rangers regularly receive death threats for their work, said Mr. Pierce, and Mr. Mzimba was no exception. The poaching syndicates were trying to emotionally and psychologically break him, and he wouldn't break, said Mr. DeCock. Last spring, Mr. Mzimba opened an intimidation docket with the local police to report multiple threats tied to his work protecting wildlife. We were hoping that those who were threatening Anton's life would be arrested and charged with conspiracy to commit murder, said Mr. Pierce. According to Mr. Pierce and Mr. DeCock, Mr. Mzimba learned in May that his name was on a more serious hit list. Mr. DeCock and his wife order, offered pardon me, to let Mr. Mzimba and his family temporarily stay at their home in another part of the country, but Mr. Mzimba declined, telling Mr. Cock he needed to stay close to his fellow rangers. According to Brigadier Molala, the police spokesman, two people arrived at Mr. Mzimba's home on July 26th, claiming that their vehicle had broken down and asking for water. Mr. Mzimba was outside working on his car, and when his son went to fetch the water, they shot Mr. Mzimba. They also wounded his wife, who has since been released from the hospital. No arrests have been made, said Brigadier Molala, but it's safe to say that we haven't stopped investigating, he concluded. Mr. Mzimba was not the first high-profile conservationist to be killed in what appeared to be a targeted assassination. In 2017, Wayne Lotter, co-director of the PAMS Foundation, an anti-poaching group in Tanzania that had been investigating ivory trafficking, was shot dead in a car on his way home from the airport in Dar es Salaam. When we lost Wayne, it was definitely a big eye-opener for us as to what extent people would go to if you're getting in their way, said Chrissy Clark, founding director of PAMS. In 2020, Lieutenant Colonel Leroy Brewer, a South African police detective who specialized in investigating rhino poaching syndicates, was fatally shot while driving to work. Last year, Bahila Obed Kofa, a senior Kenya Wildlife Services officer, was gunned down while driving home after dropping his daughter off at school. South Africa, in particular, already suffers from enormously high levels of assassinations tied to politics and organized crime, said Julian Redmeyer, director of East and Southern Africa at the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime. The fear now is that such targeted killings may also become more a norm for those working in conservation. If Mr. Mzimba's killers are not brought to justice, Mr. Rademeyer said, it will have a chilling effect on other rangers and, quote, will send a message that these kinds of things go unpunished and the people involved are effectively untouchable. Only 19% of South Africa's murder cases are solved, according to the Institute for Security Studies. Mr. Pierce, the Timbavati Reserve's warden, said that so far he and his colleagues 
have been frustrated by what they see as a lack of urgency and slowness in the investigation, Anton's legacy needs to be honored, and we need to get to the bottom of this, said Mr. Pierce. We're hoping this is seen as a high-priority case. All of the murder cases are treated as high-priority crimes, said Brigadier Mulala. As soon as we get something, we'll definitely make a quick arrest. Next article comes from the same edition of the New York Times, August 21st, written by Saki Knafo. An actor's unfinished mission to heal Brooklyn. Michael K. Williams worked to make black communities safe from violence. Three months before he died last year, the actor Michael K. Williams spent all day at a block party in the Brownsville neighborhood of Brooklyn. In some ways, it had the vibe of any block party, a DJ making people move, kids riding bikes in the street, smoke billowing out of an oil drum grill. But this wasn't just another summer day in Brownsville. Mr. Williams and a group of community activists had persuaded seven of the politicians hoping to be New York's next mayor to show up, granting them a forum to explain why they deserved the support of a black community that was used to being ignored. One by one, the candidates took turns sitting at a folding table in the middle of the block and fielded tough questions from a panel of young people who lived there. Some of those young people belonged to a gang. Many had lost friends and family members to gun violence, and few had faith in the government's ability to protect them. Mr. Williams sat at the table, too, listening intently. When Eric Adams arrived wearing a tight orange T-shirt with the slogan, We Can End Gun Violence, Mr. Williams expressed concern over his use of the term law and order at a recent debate. He chose his words with care, the thumb and forefinger of his right hand pressed together in concentration. Mr. Williams asked, Do you think putting more police on the streets is the way to deal with the violence in our community right now? Mr. Adams assured him that he didn't. We don't need an over-proliferation over of cops, said Mr. Adams. People commit crimes because of a lack of resources that come from the city. Mr. Williams had an intimate understanding of the kind of violence that results from a lack of resources. Before the world knew him as Omar, the gay stick-up artist with a strict moral code from the TV series The Wire, he was just a kid from the Vanderveer Estates, a complex of 59 buildings, spanning 30 acres of East Flatbush, a largely Caribbean neighborhood deep in Brooklyn. In his memoir, Scenes from My Life, which will be published this month, he recalls the Veer as a vibrant place where block parties had the air of family cookouts, but also as a setting of deprivation and pain. During the so-called crack, crack epidemic, police officers called the local intersection the front page because of all the murders that drew reporters to those corners. When Mr. Williams was a teenager, he watched a friend die of a bullet wound right in front of him. Toward the end of his life, Mr. Williams devoted himself to making Brooklyn's black communities safer. 
He pursued this mission in part by helping build a model for organizing that he hoped would eventually inspire a national movement through this initiative called We Build the Block. He and the other organizers held block activations throughout Brooklyn, culminating in the mayoral summit in Brownsville. Teenage activists would engage their neighbors in conversations about the political process and register, me, register them to vote. The group deliberately chose blocks that the police regarded as gang strongholds, while persuading the police, remarkably, to stay out of the way. It was a way to say we can take care of our own, Mr. Williams wrote in his memoir. None of these events, as he noted, were ever disrupted by violence. Last summer, We Build the Block took on an ambitious new challenge. With the help of a black police captain who was interested in unconventional approaches to crime reduction, it began planning to pay a group of young people touched by gang violence to take part in healing circles, a weekly conversation led by a therapist. In August, one of Mr. Williams' collaborators, Dana Rachlin, a white woman in her 30s from Staten Island, texted Mr. Williams that one of their requests for funding was out in the universe. Mr. Williams replied, Damn right it is. That was the last time she heard from him. One week later, on September 6th, Mr. Williams was found dead of a heroin and fentanyl overdose in his apartment in Williamsburg. The healing circles began the next month. At the first session, a facilitator used singing bowls in an attempt to get the kids to meditate. It didn't go well. As the kids horsed around and mocked the activity, Mr. Racklin, Ms. Racklin, thought about Mr. Williams. If he'd been there, she thought, the kids would have followed his lead. Lying on a yoga mat, she began to cry. And then she thought about one of the reasons Mr. Williams had been so good at connecting with people, his sensitivity to the pain of others. These boys, she knew, had lost friends, too. Mr. Williams' interest in community organizing can be traced to his mother. He describes her in the memoir as an energetic, caring woman who taught Sunday school opened a daycare center in their building, and cultivated a network of relationships with community leaders. He loved and admired her. He also feared her. After his father left when he was 11, his mother tried to protect him from the violence that surrounded them by forbidding him to fight, a rule that she enforced, as he pointed out, by inflicting violence on him herself. Frustrated by his defiance, she would sometimes tell him that he was unworthy of God's love. He grew to be sensitive and insecure, the softest kid, he writes, in the projects. After two older men molested him, he fell into a dark, empty state. His willingness to venture back into that state, to conjure up his most painful memories for the sake of an acting role, was the quality that would most clearly define him as an artist. The scar across his face, sustained in a razor attack outside a bar on his 25th birthday, seemed to tell of deeper wounds. We are all broken, he notes in the book, 
and people find it astonishing to see the inside made so visible. When he was 35, oh, pardon me, he was 35 when he landed his most iconic role. A fan of The Wire might have assumed that the guy playing Omar shared the show's political outlook, its outrage at the drug war. But he still knew close to zero about politics when the fifth and final season aired. That began to change when an African-American senator from Chicago, running for president that year, declared Omar Little to be his favorite character on his favorite show. Around the same time, Mr. Williams was arrested on drunken driving charges twice in six months. He had struggled with an addiction to alcohol and cocaine, crack and powder, since he was a teenager. Ordered to do community service, he offered to talk about addiction to high school kids. What began as an obligation became a passion. While Barack Obama's praise sparked an interest in the political forces affecting Mr. Williams' community, the school visits awakened him to the possibility that he could redeem himself by working with young people. But it would still be years before this would become the guiding insight of his life. In 2016, he appeared in The Night Of, an HBO drama about the moral rot of New York's criminal justice system, playing a charismatic former boxer confined on Rikers Island, he often thought about his nephew, Dominique Dupont, who was convicted at 19 of second-degree murder. Serving 25 years to life in prison, Mr. Dupont started a mentorship program and in 2017 received clemency from Governor Andrew Cuomo. The Night Of tells a less redeeming pardon me, tale, and the performance took Mr. Williams to a dark place. He was willing to sacrifice himself for some roles, Mr. DuPont told me, and those happened to be the characters that people loved the most. After years of sobriety, Mr. Williams began using drugs on the set, an actual prison in upstate New York. It got so bad, his memoir revealed, that the shoot had to be shut down for a day. While promoting the series, Mr. Williams realized he wanted to learn more about the mass incarceration of young people from neighborhoods like his. This led him to make Raised in the System, a documentary that captures the vulnerability and neglect of incarcerated children. Mr. Rockland, who met him as he was finishing that film, helped him organize a series of screenings for police officers, correction officers, prosecutors, and judges. We wanted the power holders to bring compassion and empathy to the youth before them, their families and communities, she said. Mr. Rockland was in some, pardon me again, Ms. Rockland was in some ways an unlikely ally. She had grown up in a conservative Staten Island household. As a teenager, she made campaign calls for George W. Bush. She recalls assuming that people who committed crimes were bad. But after college, while working as an advocate for crime victims in the Staten Island courthouse, she found herself, for the first time, spending time around young people who had been arrested and jailed. It was eye-opening. She soon began working with adolescents who had been getting into trouble, eventually starting a nonprofit. As Mr. Williams became an increasingly prominent advocate for criminal justice reform, Ms. Rockland continued working closely with him, 
connecting him with nonprofit groups in the field, teaching him about the inner workings of government, prepping him, pardon me, prepping him for meetings with elected officials. Mr. Williams, for his part, used his fame to attract attention to her work and served as a personal mentor, Uncle Mike, to kids in her organization. Then, in the summer of 2020, as protests over police violence surged through New York and the rest of the country, Mr. Williams began talking to Ms. Rocklin about how to bolster the role that black New Yorkers play in shaping the city's public safety policies. With the radio host Shawnee Culture and five high school students from Brooklyn, they started We Build the Block, the community organizing campaign. Royal Highness Allah, one of the young people who helped start the initiative, recalled how down-to-earth Mr. Williams always seemed at their block activations. He was outside at every event, he said. No security, no nothing, talking with the old people and the people rolling dice and smoking weed, getting to know where their head's at, spreading the word about how to make the community safer. Eric Gonzalez, Brooklyn's reform-minded district attorney, said he was unique, adding a lot of people with his celebrity, they do social media or they donate money to causes, but he kept it on the ground. In 2019, Ms. Rockland introduced Mr. Williams to Derby St. Fort, the police captain who would collaborate with him on the healing circles. Captain St. Fort felt a deep kinship with Mr. Williams, with all his success, he didn't feel deserving, said the captain. I felt the same way at times. When he told Mr. Williams about a group of young men who were causing harm in his precinct, pardon me, the actor said he could imagine how they felt, unworthy of love, incapable of change. He looked at the pain of those who caused pain, said Captain DeFort, St. Fort, pardon me. Arresting them wouldn't change their perspectives, so the three of them developed a strategy that they hoped would. This was how the healing circles came about. Despite skepticism inside the police department, Captain St. Fort fully embraced the idea and ever, pardon me, even participated in the circles. He found it hard to imagine that the kids would ever trust him, but he was open with them, acknowledging that he had made mistakes in his life. Slowly, he said, the teenagers began to open up too. A lot of times they felt they had done so much harm in their lives that they weren't deserving of support, he said. We had to challenge that. I told them you deserve it. Two of the participants, Dorian Garrett, 18, and Kareem Holder, 20, now volunteer as community organizers, one recent afternoon, they met with Captain St. Fort and Ms. Rockland, along with representatives of the Public Advocate's Office, the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, and the New York City Housing Authority's tenant body, and other groups in the basement of a public library, where they were leading an effort to plan a back-to-school event for younger kids in their neighborhood. Mr. Garrett and Mr. Holder had both gotten steady jobs through the program, and neither had been arrested since the sessions began. They'd never met Mr. Williams. But Miss Rockland and Captain St. Fort had told them all about the guy with the scar they'd seen on TV, how he made people feel like they mattered, 
like somebody cared? That's something that I definitely want to do, said Mr. Garrett. Because the stuff that I experienced, I don't want that for the younger generation. He wanted those kids to know something. I'm here and they are loved. Our next article comes from the Boulder Weekly and is an archived article I pulled from the June 16th edition of that. We've covered Deerfield before in this program, but this is an update. A second chance for Deerfield. Colorado's historical black homestead is on the verge of dissolution, but could be saved at the final hour by the National Park System. It's written by Lavina Kalwani. Over two decades in the early 20th century, Deerfield, Colorado went from being one of the most successful black homestead sites in American history to being a shattered dream and deserted settlement. Now the ghost town might be getting a second chance at life. The 1910 homestead site, located 80 miles northeast of Boulder in Weld County, went through many highs and lows in its short history. After years of soaring praise in black newspapers across America, weather changes in the area led to crop failure and the homestead's eventual abandonment. After decades of research and calls for preservation starting in the eight, pardon me, the 1980s, new and significant progress is happening to restore the one-of-a-kind Colorado site and raise awareness about its history. Efforts that were commended at the 2022 Dana Crawford and State Honors Awards ceremony on June 9th, hosted by Colorado Preservation Incorporated CPI a nonprofit that promotes awareness, education, and technical services to threatened sites, such as Deerfield. The story of Deerfield is a story of perseverance, of how the black community navigated a difficult time in American history, with World War I on the horizon and the KKK on the rise, and of how Coloradans today refuse to allow history to be erased. Despite Deerfield's tragic end, it serves as an important source of black history and pride. Dr. George June, professor of Africana Studies at the University of Northern Colorado, UNC, and a leader in Deerfield's preservation movement says, many people, no matter if they're black, white, Latino, Asian American, whatever, have no idea that black people built their own towns, their own communities, and that many of them were successful. Black people were determined, in spite of everything, to own their own farms, to own their own houses, to take care of themselves, to have their own governments in their communities, their own churches, and so forth, and to do for themselves. The National Park Service Survey In a letter dated May 11, 2022, the Department of Interior, which houses the National Park Service, agreed to conduct a reconnaissance survey to determine whether the Deerfield Homestead site merits further consideration as a potential unit of NPS. The letter did not include a date or timeline for the study, but it stated it likely would not begin until 2023. Reconnaissance surveys evaluate whether a site fits four criteria for national significance, as outlined by NPS. It must be an outstanding example of a particular type of resource. 
possess exceptional value or quality in illustrating or interpreting the nature or cultural themes of our national heritage. Pardon me, that's of our nation's heritage. Offer superlative opportunities for recreation, for public use and enjoyment, or for scientific study, and retain a high degree of integrity as a true, accurate, and relatively unspoiled example of the resource. The survey request comes as part of Representatives Ken Buck, Republican, Colorado District 4, and Joe Neguse's, Democrat, Colorado District 2, bipartisan effort to preserve Deerfield through legislative action. HB 6438, the Deerfield Study Act, is currently still in the House. First introduced by the two lawmakers in January 2022, the bill was designed to preserve Deerfield as a testament to the black community in Colorado and across the country, said Neguse. The DOI letter indicates that even though HB 6438 has not yet been implemented legislatively, NPS is taking steps outlined in the bill to preserve the town. If established as a National Historic Site, Deerfield would gain, among other benefits, greater awareness and additional avenues for funding. A few short years ago, Deerfield was nearly erased from the map completely. In 2019, manufactured housing company Clayton Homes was set to construct modular homes on Deerfield. Clayton eventually responded to public pressure by agreeing to a land swap with the Black American West Museum, which now owns the homestead site. But without formal safeguards in place, Deerfield remains susceptible to future development or other forms of destruction, making the survey a key step in protecting a cultural cornerstone of black American history. Preservation underway. Deerfield is one of only two African American pardon me historical home pardon me again African American historical town sites in the country that have standing structures remaining, said Andrew Feinstein, president of UNC at the 8th Annual Deerfield Conference on May 21st. The once bustling town has only three buildings left, the Deerfield Filling Station, a diner, and the home of the town's founder, O.T. Jackson. These three structures, in addition to a fallen lunchroom and blacksmith shop, have been the focus of recent preservation efforts. The urgency of preservation is high, as Dr. Robert Brunswick, Professor Emeritus of Anthropology at UNC, and a leader in Deerfield Research notes, these are deteriorating buildings that are over a century old. The past several decades have chipped away at Deerfield's remaining structures. For example, the town grocery store fell in the late 1990s, so the pressure to save what's left from a similar fate is high. In late 2021, the standing buildings were secured through protective chain leak fencing heavy-duty doors and thick polycarbonate window coverings, termed mothballing. These measures address the ongoing threat of vandalism at Deerfield. People would come in, break through the windows and the doors, explains June. We find empty beer bottles, whiskey bottles. People urinate inside, defecate inside, put graffiti inside. In April and May of 2022, the site underwent weeks of hazmat testing and abatement that resulted in the removal 
of lead-based paint and asbestos. As of late May, the process was nearly complete, marking the first step of an existing UNC preservation project funded by a half-million-dollar NPS grant awarded in September 2021. We started a little later than we would have hoped, said Brunswick, due to the inability to work on the site during winter. The next steps. Now and in the coming months, the NPS grant will support preservation efforts focused on building, stabilization, and exterior restoration to return the structures to their historic appearance. To start, this will include an architectural study of the walls and buildings to plan and design areas of work. It will be followed by the actual restoration of roofs, siding, foundation. The goal, said Brunswick, is for the exterior of the filling station and O.T. Jackson's house to look more or less like what they looked like in, say, 1920. Kim Grant, the Endangered Places Program Director for CPI, anticipates this process will take about two years. He also says a separate grant through the Colorado State Historical Fund was allocated in June this year, which will provide more than $49,000 in funding for the architectural design and restoration of the interiors. In 2010, BAWM began hosting Deerfield Days, which spurred the interest and recognition that Deerfield receives today. CPI uh, highlighted Deerfield as one of those important sites that helps to tell the story of Western migration of black Americans. It's a remarkable story. Deerfield's story. Deerfield was known in the late, pardon me, the mid-1910s through the early 1920s for its agricultural success. Strawberries, turnips, wheat, and many other crops were not only common, but often yielded unusually large harvests. The town celebrated its prosperity through harvest festivals, where even the governors would come out. That's how much of a well-known place Deerfield was, said June. It was also one of the few places where African Americans had their own homes, their own farms, said June, where a self-sufficient community was created, a reality not many in a deeply segregated America could achieve. Five archaeological field sessions have been conducted at Deerfield over the last ten years. A sixth began this June. Items recovered so far include glass beads, shotgun shells, a rubber shoe sole, and a 1920s car speedometer. What we're finding out there is not a lot of things that are really earth-shaking, June says, but add little pieces to the puzzle. The objects paint a picture of a middle-class community with some of the highest quality materials coming from the home of founder O.T. Jackson. A racially progressive town. Deerfield was exceptional not only for its farming, but for its level of racial integration. The town's school taught both white and black children decades ahead of Brown versus Board of Education. Black farmers, one of whom owned the first wheat thrashers in the area, would lend their equipment to white neighbors and vice versa. By 1915, you got the rise of the Ku Klux Klan, says June, and Denver had one of the biggest clavern, pardon me, claverns of Klan members in the United States. But out there on the farmland, the black and white farmers got along together. Additionally, black women and men in the area sought work at white houses and farms. 
They need to rely on each other in the harsh conditions of Colorado. Homesteading helped cultivate an environment of racial tolerance. But even when it came to recreation, Deerfield was unique. One early black settler, Squire Brockman, would host dances with his brother-in-law. Both black and white townsfolk came to enjoy the pair's fiddle and banjo. They danced on the same floor, which was extremely rare for the time. Deerfield's baseball team played against all of the white teams in the area. It was really kind of a model community in that sense, remarked June. The role of women. Though Deerfield was a trailblazer in racial integration, women bore the brunt of the day-to-day -day work that created success for the entire community, Homesteading was a difficult and expensive proposition, and men often, quote, went off to work building railroads, working in the towns, and working in the cities, such as nearby Denver, to supplement their income, says Brunswick. That left the wives to stay behind, raise the kids, and basically keep the farms going. So there was a lot of responsibility and a lot of stress for women. They were tough people. Not uncommon for homesteads across the West, women would do everything from maintaining the households, cooking the meals, raising the children, and actually doing a lot of the hard physical work outside. They were really the bulwark of the homesteads and farmsteads of the day, says Brunswick. They maintained social ties with distant homesteads and enriched church life. Yet, while historical records and photographs of Deerfield do include women, they are not well represented. This was due to discrimination against black communities and because women in general were in some ways second to their husbands, said Brunswick. They were secondary because they didn't necessarily own the land themselves and they didn't necessarily do all of the official legal documents. O.T. Jackson's second wife, Minerva Jane Jackson, established herself as a community matriarch O.T., like many Deerfield men, was often away working in Denver. In his absence, Minerva was instrumental in maintaining and growing the community. June says she was functionally in charge. You didn't go against her. Brunswick, ex pardon me, Brunswick expands on this, saying she was kind of the backbone of the town of Deerfield and a lot of the farmsteads around Deerfield. She was a tough lady. Minerva's story reflects an unfortunate reality of many homesteading women in both Deerfield and beyond. As Brunswick says, women were responsible for an awful lot of the success, but at the same time, I don't think generally they were given enough of the credit. Revitalizing History When the Dust Bowl swept through the region in the 1930s, Deerfield was one of its many victims. The changing weather pattern, pardon me, weather patterns made farming impossible for Deerfield residents. The town was abandoned, with some people relocating to Greeley and Denver. It was a huge mass exodus because the topsoil blew away, says June. The failure had nothing to do with black people. It was the weather. Nearly 100 years later, the town is regaining its mark in black American history. To Brunswick, preserving Deerfield is about honoring the legacy of people that have gone before us, 
that have made our nation what it is today. It is about addressing the histories that have taken place over the past century, two centuries, and understanding it. It is about celebrating black people's importance in defining the future, not just the past. And our next and probably final article for this week comes from the Wall Street Journal's print edition, Saturday, Sunday, August 27th and 28th. Comes from their Icons section, written by Judith Dobrinsky. Dobrzynski, I think, Dobrzynski, Black Artists Behind the Lens, an exhibition in New Orleans, explores the work of studio photographers since the 1840s. When curator Brian Piper of the New Orleans Museum of Art, NOMA, began to study the work of early black commercial photographers in the 2010s, 2010s the subject was largely terra incognita, with very few exceptions, their photographs were not included in the narrative of art photography, he said. Now Dr. Piper is helping to close that gap with a new exhibition called to the camera Black American Studio Photographers, the first museum show to focus on the artistry and social significance of these little-known men and women. Opening at Noma on September 16th, Called to the Camera includes more than 170 images by 41 photographers from the 1840s to the 1960s. It highlights that blacks were active in a very creative endeavor. Good studio photography requires real skill and artistry very early in the history of photography, said Bruce Barnes, the director of the George Eastman Museum, the world's oldest photography museum. Their story begins soon after daguerreotypes were introduced in the U.S. in 1839, when a, quote, small number of black Americans began to make and sell daguerreotypes in businesses that initially were called parlors or galleries, Dr. Piper writes in the exhibition catalog. Portraiture was the prime subject, at least at first, Black patrons commissioned photo photographs for the same reason whites did, as keepsakes, and to convey their place in life, their respectability, and their aspirations. Called to the Camera features several portraits by this first generation of black photographers, such as James Presley Ball, who operated a successful studio in Cincinnati, Ohio, in the 1850s, and would photograph a number of celebrities during his long career, including Queen Victoria. In a portrait of Ball's brother-in-law, Alexander S. Thomas, from the late 1850s, the sitter strikes a dignified pose, formally dressed in a suit and tie, arm on a side table. Black photographers sometimes made portraits for white customers, often creating warm depictions, like Ball's Two Young Girls, circa 1891 to 1900. Shown in a rural setting, Augustus Washington, who opened a studio in Hartford, Connecticut, in the 1840s, photographed Sarah Tainter Bulkley Waterman, the young wife of a sea captain, in a formal pose, 
Washington soon would immigrate to Liberia, where he established a daguerreotype studio in Monrovia. But black photographers had an edge when working with black clients, thanks to their experience with lighting dark skin shades and tightly curled hair. As if to document that, a 1940 photograph shows Morgan and Marvin Smith, largely self-taught twin brothers who were famed for, pardon me, for photographing life in Harlem, lighting and fixing the hair of Sarah Lou Harris Carter, one of the first black fashion and advertising models. After about 1910, some black photographers joined their white peers in adopting the techniques of pictorialism, using soft focus, short depth of field, and relaxed poses to produce more artistic, expressive images. The show offers an example in the New York photographer C. M. Battery's 1915 portrait of Margaret Murray Washington, the wife of Booker T. Washington, Beyond portraiture, black photographers also began to create more ambitious and sophisticated images. James Vanderzee, a leading light of the Harlem Renaissance, frequently manipulated negatives and assembled photo montages. His Wedding Day Harlem, parentheses, Future Expectations, from 1926, depicts the happy couple in an elaborate, columned setting in the foreground. Van der Zier overlaid another negative to produce the vague image of the child they dream of having. Family album, parentheses, memories, from 1938, inserts a ghostly image of a deceased girl hovering over her father and siblings as they peruse an album, a dog at their feet. Photographers who started off in the studio often went on to create more artistic documentary images. Dr. Piper points to Sisters of the Holy Family, Classroom Portrait, circa 1922, a crisp, highly stylized photo by author P. Badu that shows a group of New Orleans nuns reading, their habits creating an alternating pattern of black and white. Black photographers memorialized important occasions like birthday parties or the purchase of a new home or a car. They chronicled basketball and football games, art and dancing classes, assembly lines and medical conventions. Called to the Camera includes photographs of the Glee Club of Tuskegee Institute in 1909 and a meeting of collegiate deans and educators in Negro schools at Howard University around 1930. From the beginning, black photographers captured celebrities, too. The show includes four images of Frederick Douglass, including a daguerreotype made around 1855 by an unknown photographer and one by B.F. Smith and Son of Portland, Maine, from 1864. Later pictures include Austin Hansen's Eartha Kitt teaching a dance class at Harlem YMCA from 1955 and Al Green in the Hooks Brothers Studio, circa 1968, a long-established photo studio in Memphis, Tennessee. 
What's wonderful about the show is that we usually tell stories of social phenomena with a white cast of characters, said Mr. Barnes. This show uses a different cast of characters to tell a story that is a universal story. And once again, if you're in the New Orleans area, this opens September 16th, and it's going to be at the New Orleans Museum of Art. It looks like I have time for one more. This comes from Today News Source. Um, all black female crew operates a flight to honor Bessie Coleman. This was posted Monday, August 22nd by Liz Calvario. And it comes courtesy of American Airlines. American Airlines celebrated the 100-year legacy of Bessie Coleman, the first black woman to earn a pilot's license, in a special way. The airline honored Bessie's legacy by hosting Gigi Coleman, the late pilot's great-niece, on a flight from Dallas-Fort Worth to Phoenix that was operated by an all-black female crew. From the pilot to flight attendants to cargo team and maintenance technicians, according to a press release. There were 36 women listed as members of the historic flight crew on American Airlines' website. I am grateful for American Airlines to give us this opportunity to highlight my great-aunt's accomplishments in the field of aviation, said Gigi, who is also president of Bessie Coleman Aviation All-Stars. Captain Beth Powell added, I'm beyond thrilled to be a part of the crew where we're inspiring young girls, young girls of color, to see the various roles that these women play in every aspect to make this flight possible. The airline's Instagram also showed a video of the women gearing up for the flight. These women symbolize an empowering legacy, the words on the video read, one hundred years ago, Bessie Coleman paved the way for this all-black crew to soar. Thank you, Bessie Coleman, for breaking down barriers for black women to continue to spread their wings in aviation. In a statement, the airline said it is, quote, being intentional in its efforts to diversify the flight deck, stating that black women, quote, have been notably underrepresented in the aviation industry, especially as pilots, representing less than 1% in the commercial airline industry. It added that through the American Airlines Cadet Academy, they are committed to expanding awareness of and increasing accessibility to the pilot career within diverse communities. Additionally, the day after the historic flight, the pilots, cadets, and members of the Bessie Coleman Foundation met with students at the academies at South South Mountain in Phoenix, to talk about careers in aviation, according to a video. In 1921, Bessie became the first African-American woman, the first woman of Native American descent, to hold a pilot's license. She performed at many air shows over the next five years before her tragic death. Bessie died on April 30, 1926, in Jacksonville, Florida. She was preparing for an air show when an unsecured wrench got caught in the control gears, forcing the plane to crash. Bessie, who was not wearing a seatbelt, 
died at the age of 34. Well, that brings me to the end of our time for this week. Thank you for joining us for the Black Experience Hour. AINC programming is made possible by the Commerce City CDBG. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303-786-7777.